This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network. I am blessed and honored to be in dialogue with my guest today, Dr. Anne Schneider, a historian of Brazil and of human rights. She is here with us to talk about her new book, Amnesty in Brazil, Recompense After Repression, 1895 to 2010, published in Pittsburgh by University of Pittsburgh Press, 2021. Anne, it's my highest honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you. Thank you um, for the invitation, for your kind words. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm delighted to have this chance to, to speak with you. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? Where did you study? Yes, I am actually from a smallish town in Nebraska. And I uh, uh, stayed in Nebraska for undergraduate and studied Spanish and, and English literature. And then I taught Spanish for um, a number of years. And I was in, inspired to go to graduate school because I followed closely the events surrounding the arrest of Augusto Pinochet, the Chilean dictator in 1998, when he was arrested in London on an Spanish arrest warrant. And I was so intrigued by this event and what it meant as a kind of a watershed moment in accountability and what was possible. And I decided that I wanted to go to graduate school. And so I uh, pursued initially uh, a master's degree in Latin American studies from the University of Texas. And then I did a doctorate in history at the University of Chicago. How did you become inspired to study Brazilian history? Uh, language was my entry point, actually, because I was granted a, a fellowship to study Portuguese, and I became intrigued um, about Brazil through studying the language. And then I had an opportunity as a new student at the University of Chicago for a human rights internship. They funded students to volunteer for human rights organizations in the, around the world. And I, I was able to arrange an internship with an organization in Rio de Janeiro called um, Grupo Totonuca Mais, or Torture Never Again group. So I spent a summer helping them with their archive, and I became fascinated uh, by Brazil. I was absolutely hooked. I sort of felt like the, um, the line in the Pablo Neruda poem about it was at that age poetry arrived in search of me. I just felt like even though I'd had this career before that um, Brazil was going to be, and the study of Brazil was going to be part of my life. And so I, I, um, I took it from there. The question of amnesty actually came up in that, in that first summer. Uh, I was attending one of the meetings that this, this organization holds, and an individual had asked um, if they were having a conversation about this new commission that had been set up in Brazil on amnesty. And she um, was a former, um, had been in prison and tortured during the dictatorship. She had lived in exile and come back. And she asked the question, am I amnestied? Is my name on a list somewhere? 
And I found it fascinating, the conversations they were having, the questions surrounding amnesty, what it is, how it operates, what the stakes of it are, and also just the larger questions about repair of harm and how that's done and what can be repaired in the aftermath of repression. So that's really the inspiration behind, behind this book. What did you learn about yourself during the writing, revising, and editing process that went into this book? This was a long labor of love um, that I worked on. I would say that I learned and relearned, I think, to have patience with the process. I felt a real obligation uh, to finish it and to, and to do justice to the stories that I had found in the archive, the stories that were told to me by the individuals themselves. And so I just wanted to, to you know, see it through. I, I also learned that I loved the puzzle of, of writing up research and how to bring it together and present it. Wow, what an inspiration. It, uh, in the contents of your book, you stress the difference between amnestying and being amnestied. Can you clarify the difference? What is at stake in the difference in nuance between the two subtly different ways of thinking of amnesty? Yeah, they're, they're curious terms, right? And there's no parallel. We'd never say amnestied or amnestying in English. Um, but I use them because I, it, I think it, because the, it's used in Portuguese, it's, it's the way it's, things are discussed in Brazil. And I think it gets at that there is something about amnesty and the way that it has operated at different moments and over time in, in Brazil. The term amnestied is one that, that you see um, peppered throughout, um, throughout the, the history, but the amnestying, the gerund, was a term I first saw when I was reviewing some of the findings of the um, petitioners to this commission that I mentioned before that was set up, this national commission in the early 2000s to um, provide restitution and indemnity to persons who had been um, victims of political persecution. And in this, in this compendium of, of rulings from this commission, the head of the commission had dedicated this volume to the amnestied and the amnestying. And I thought, well, this amnestying uh, indicates that we're, it's a notion of a process this is something that you that that somebody does. That it's a bit of a of a journey of sorts. There's some sort of a transition um, for, uh, until you re reach the status of then being amnestied. So um, it, it's a way I think to to think through and to present the idea of what's at stake in in being amnestied, what it what it represents, and why it matters. And of course, in the book is looking at these processes at different moments and over time. From the late nineteen, um, from the the late eighteen hundreds through the the early two thousands. One comment of yours that you present in the book is, is is the following: where you're where you place the Brazilian amnesty in a comparative context with Argentina and Chile. You write as follows: Indeed, at the same time within Latin America, the Argentine government began to compensate victims and survivors of the nineteen. 76 to 83 dirty war there. Then shortly after the establishment of the Brazilian Amnesty Commission, a soul searching, quote unquote, soul searching 
Brazilian government also budgeted for indemnity payments as well as medical and psychological aid for surviving torture victims of the 1973 to 1989 dictatorship under General Augusto Pinochet. Only the Brazilian program, however, referred to the reparations as amnesty. Can you go into more detail about what you intend to convey in the insight that I had just read? Um, why is it noteworthy that Brazil referred to reparations as amnesty and others did not? Um, what did Brazil's process have in common with Argentina and Chile? And what was different in Brazil's process relative to Chile and Argentina? Yeah, and, and we could extend it and say relative to other other countries in the region as well. As well. And it, you know, this is the moment in the late 1990s and the early 2000s in a, a process of transitional justice or what by then might be called post-transitional justice. This is referencing the way in which these uh, various countries, nations, societies dealt with the legacy of dictatorship and the aftermath of civil war, which were uh, which occurred throughout the region, Central and South America, in, in many, many of the countries. And so what were those, those processes um, and the way in which Brazil was an outlier? So at this moment, we're, we're seeing that there is sort of this move towards some sort of indemnity to survivors in the region. Um, and I make the point, but only Brazil calls them amnesty. And I, and I think that is curious because what is it that they expect, what is it that amnesty does in Brazil and comparative to, to, other, um, to the other countries? And both Chile and, and Argentina at the end of, uh, or the process of democratization included a truth commission. So this uh, official mechanism that reported in, in in Chile's case, for example, they dealt with initially they dealt with cases that resulted in death. So it was this, this was this effort to acknowledge. And there's then there was the question of of accountability. Do, is this something that looks like um, like post World War II? Is there a Nuremberg? And the answer learned in Latin America is no. There were initially some trials in in Argentina, but then there was backpedaling on that. So there was this sort of trade-off that in the region there, you know, truth would replace trials as a way to focus on, on the victims and do what is possible in a situation in which the military still have some power. Um, but Brazil went down this path of amnesty and even in the, in the question of, of indemnity, it's associated with uh, amnesty. In the other countries, amnesties were put in place and functioned as a way to prevent the investigation and prosecution of egregious human rights violations. They also did that in Brazil, but in Brazil embraced amnesty as this mechanism of, of restitution and of transitional justice. In, in your book, um, you point out how in 1999, Chile recategorized the disappearances of missing persons as kidnappings. Why did Brazil approach its disappeared persons differently? Yeah, this was an interesting, so that about that same time in the late 1990s, it's actually when it occurs while um, Pinochet is in custody in, in London pending this potential um, uh, 
execution of a Spanish arrest warrant for a case involving um, um, victims of, of the regime in, in Chile. What happens while he's gone is there's an argument made um, before the court who is, um, who's looking at a case of, of executions and disappearances that the amnesty that was enacted in Chile covers a, a certain uh, crimes in a certain time period. And it would prevent the investigation of anything that had happened. But there's this moment where this, this argument um, is accepted by, you know, in, in Chile that if there, if there is no, in a forced disappearance, there is no body. So it must be considered a crime still in progress unless and until there's a confirmation that the person is, is, uh, has been killed. Um, and so it was, it was a sort of a breakthrough moment. It's kind of what some would call like a, a entrepreneurial in terms of seeking justice, um, that this crime has to be investigated either to determine that, you know, conclusively the individual was killed and is deceased, um, but that the amnesty can't be applied unless and until that, that information is, is, um, is evident. Now, Brazil has been far more recalcitrant and that same legal argument was, was made um, not too long ago in a case involving forced disappearance. And it was not accepted by the judge in part because, um, because of the amnesty that was in place that, um, that has been determined to have been what they say would be um, bilateral affecting both the opposition and, and members of the, of the state, but also that there had been a law passed in 1995 that recognized people that were um, killed or disappeared. Can you comment on the Araguaya case that came before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights? Um, what was the relationship between Brazil's non-compliance with the ruling of the IACHR on the Araguaia case and the domestic amnesty process going on in Brazil at the time? Right. So um, this is this is the 2010 moment, and it's part of the reason, um, except for a brief uh, epilogue, that I end the book in 2010. Um, because it's this it's this important moment in the story of amnesty in Brazil, but in particular with um, in light of these transitional justice processes from the end of the of sort of the Cold War dictatorships and the civil wars of that time period in the region up to up to the present date. So what happens in 2010 is there are there are two important rulings, uh, one domestic and one through the Inter-American Court on amnesty in Brazil. The domestic one comes first and the domestic case goes up to the high court in Brazil. And it's really a question about, um, it's, a, it's a complicated legal argument, but, but essentially it is saying that the amnesty that exists in Brazil cannot cover acts of torture because that is incongruent with um, our, our constitution that's in place. That argument was uh, rejected by the court in in, um, in Brazil um, on a number of different grounds, but essentially found that the, the amnesty that was put in place at the, as the military regime was exiting and, and turn, returning power to civilian authorities 
um, was the product of a political process and that it was a negotiated um, settlement in Congress that um, in fact covered, um, was interpreted to be cover both sides bilateral in nature. So this happens. At the same time, there had been a case proceeding in the Inter-American Court um, system or the human rights system. The Inter-American uh, Commission and Court are part of the Organization of, Amer of American States, a regional um, system to which countries are, you know, belong to the treaty. Um, the case there actually started in 1995 uh, via complaint by the commission by family members of individuals who had been part of a guerrilla movement in a remote area called Araguaya that were resisting the dictatorship. That movement was, um, it was a small group. Um, it was decimated by in military incursions in the early 1970s and, um, and the bodies were disappeared. There had been efforts in the court system in, in uh, Brazil to obtain information that were no, that did not reach any success. Um, and so that opened a door for them to file a complaint before the Inter-American system, which um, uh, the commission held hearings, but couldn't come up, there was no resolution there. So they referred it to the court. And the court has a uh, quite a bit of jurisdiction on um, amnesties in the region cannot prevent uh, via the treaty obligations of, of the countries, the investigation and prosecution of individuals involved in egregious human rights violations. So there's this finding that follows the domestic court's finding that the, the amnesty um, stands as it is, um, that says the opposite. Brazil is in non-compliance with its treaty obligations because of this. So it sort of highlights the um, sort of the paradox of amnesty as something that um, you know, I argue in the book has been a long serving mechanism to secure rights and restitution, but then it also is this obstacle to any sort of accountability. Can we discuss the Grabois case in, in more detail? I would be curious to ask you how the Grabois case uh, fits into this process. Yeah, so this is this is the story of of um, Victoria Grabois, who's this is in large part the subject of of the last chapter in the book, um, and and Victoria is one of the surviving family members of the uh, guerrilla members of the guerrilla movement I just mentioned in Uruguay. Uh, her father was one of the leaders of the movement. Her brother um, was was um, was also a member, as was her husband. They were all killed and disappeared in, in those confrontations. So she was among uh, the family members that brought, that brought the case. Um, interestingly, part of the, the crux of, of the case of the amnesty issue before the, the national court, before the Brazilian court, was on um, one clause in the 1970 amnesty law that said it covered crimes connected to political crimes. And it was the interpretation of that clause that um, that said that the resulted in the finding that the that the amnesty was, as they said, bilateral, covering crimes of the opposition to the military regime at, as well as um, state agents of the regime. Um, it is the same clause, interestingly, that um, 
that assisted Victoria in sort of her her journey in this process because as her she did she had been um, uh, with her husband for a time in an area um, that working with the with the um, the Communist Party that was that was part of this movement. Um, but then once they went to Araguaia, she um, was sent to Sao Paulo. Um, when they disappeared, she went into hiding and she um, started to use a, a different name. And so she lived under a, a different name, finished her university education, rented an apartment, um, bought a car, um, registered her son for, for school and lived under an assumed name um, for the remainder of the dictatorship for to you know, um, try to escape detection by the um, security forces. Then when the amnesty came, she wanted to return to using her name and sought the assistance of a lawyer. And they argued that, that, uh, that her, her, this crime of using a false name was connected to, um, to the politics of, of her family and for her own protection and that she would, should be granted amnesty from prosecution for, um, for using a false identity on those grounds. Um, and so she, she was able to do that. Um, and it was the same clause that then um, paradoxically protected the agents who would have been responsible for the disappearance of her family members. She was um, among uh, individuals who then testified before the court. So she was involved in this case from, from the beginning, the Inter-American Court, I mean, in this instance, from, from its inception and the filing of the complaint all the way to testimony in front of the, the court in Costa Rica, um, and then the decision that came down in 2010. What was the Caravans of Amnesty Initiative? Uh, and also, what was the Marks of Memory project? Why are they significant? So um, this commission, I'm just going to say a few more words about this national commission that was instituted in the early 2000s in, in Brazil. This was the, the result of a, of a long series of events related to, that began with this amnesty in 1979 that we've been speaking about, um, that there had been sort of expansions on it and um, additional laws addressing things that were left out and some other legislation and things that that pushed towards um, acknowledgement of of, um, victims of the regime and restitution for uh, victims of the regime. So it was established um, initially in 2001 and formalized in legislation in 2002. Um, Individuals who had been victims of, of political persecution could file to be have their claims reviewed by by the commission, which separated its work into different areas. One of the sort of areas of, of, of work addressed individuals who were impacted in their economic life or their careers, and there was a formula for restitution. Others were those that were victims of, of torture and arbitrary detention, um, but there wasn't a direct connection to say their economic life so, I mean, generally those were kind of the, the, the main areas. 
as this developed, so we get to, this is 2002, it's, initi it's formalized. By about 2008, it's under um, some new leadership and they're, they're expanding the work of the commission and what it can do and what amnesty does. So they, they begin to take, with well, this caravan of amnesties is to have these then hearings on, on different claims, but to not do them in their offices in, in Brasilia, but to, to, um, to go to different states and cities in, in, in Brazil and to have those hearings there and to make them public so that people can come and watch this work of the regime or of the, of the commission in, um, in adjudicating these claims. So it became a way that was almost performative of this, here's the process of transitional justice that we're going through and you're, um, you know, people can, can come and watch these. It enabled individuals to, to come who couldn't have otherwise um, gone to the hearings. Um, they report that there were additional um, information received and sort of framed it as, uh, it was often accompanied by um, different um, discussions, presentations, photos, things like that in collaboration with local governments or local civil society. Um, so they had these as, as a way to, um, to show this and thought of it as something that added to collective memory about that time. So that this is a, an open discussion about what the repression was like. And the Marks of Memory was a project that grew from that, that, that helped uh, with initiatives of oral history, um, of collecting information, of, of, of pushing, pushing along this, this work of transitional justice. And what is significant about it is that it, these happen, or what is interesting to me about it is that it, it happens under, under sort of the rubric of amnesty. And so it, it brings to, to attention the, the importance historically of amnesty is something that does something in Brazil. And then you have this expansion on it from just sort of adjudicating a claim to restitution through a calcul calculus that's has been established under law to something that is push pushing on these things for other, for other achievements under, you know, in some sort of a, um, the work of transitional justice. And the commission itself began to see itself as an engine not only of reparations and restitution, but of truth-telling, because there is at this time not a truth commission in Brazil. Um, also of acknowledging, sort of elevating um, the, the victims and what amnesty means for victims and delegitimizing amnesty for perpetrators. So it sees itself in this way. Then this um, gets then rolled back uh, um, under, under the current administration and, um, and a little bit before. What was AI-5? Can you discuss the significance of the Fifth Institutional Act? Yes. Um, so this actually is a, connects quite well to the question you just asked. The, this, this act um, was one, what was often called the, the coup within the coup. It happens mm -hmm. in late 1968. The Brazilian military um, dictatorship is 1964 to 1985. Um, the regime ruled initially um, and significantly through what were called institutional acts. These are just you know, um, authoritarian acts that are passed. The first one, the first institutional act happened days after the regime um, 
and took over days after the coup. It revoked the political mandates of elected officials. It suspended political rights for a period of 10 years for a number of people. By the end of that, of that year, first year of the dictatorship, about 3,500 uh, Brazilians had their, um, had their political rights revoked. The second one um, happened the next year and it basically set up a two-party system where there was a pro-government party and then a nominal opposition party. But it's this AI Cinco, it's this fifth institutional act that really signals a hardline turn with the regime, sort of it took the guardrails off, so to speak. It opened the door to the establishment of the structures of repression, especially the, the various organs that, the intelligence organs and operational organs that um, went out uh, and, and hunted down um, the opposition, the sub, you know, quote unquote, the sub, subversives. So what's significant here in, in this story is that um, AI Cinco has, ha, creates, you know, under AI Cinco, a number of, of Brazilians are victimized um, by arbitrary detention, by torture, by horrific acts against their persons. There are also a number who are simply purged from their jobs. So they're not harmed you know, physically, but they lose, they lose their, their livelihood. And so these, all of these cases then that happen under the dictatorship, under the, the umbrella of AI Cinco, even though they, they look um, sort of uneven in terms of what the repression looked like, all of those cases can end up and do end up in front of this commission that then rules on them. Although the calculus is different for the restitution that is available to people who've been impacted in their economic life versus those who were, um, who were victimized in their, in their sort of physical, um, their physical persons. So it highlights what happens in the, in the, uh, on the granular level, level of actually working out these details. Um, and so it opens up the commission to criticism on those grounds because the, the amount of restitution um, consistently is, is quite a bit greater for those who, um, who suffered sort of economic hardship because of, of the impact on their career versus those who were the, the um, targets of, of the repressive apparatus of the regime. Who was Mario Lima? What was CONAPE, the National Commission of the Amnesty of Petrobras? Why is it central to the story of amnesty in Brazil? And can you describe Lima's court case in April 1982? So this is a, this is, uh, um, Mario Lima was a, a labor leader in the national um, um, petroleum company company called Petrobras. He was also a congressional representative in the state of Bahia, and he was one among um, several hundred individuals who immediately lost their uh, political rights when the military regime took over. He was also detained. Um, so he was a, he was um, um, targeted by that first institutional act I mentioned, um, where he lost the mandate and his political rights. He later was convicted for um, for having led a work st stoppage in Petrobras as a union um, leader, and he served um, a prison sentence. Um, and in 
refineries throughout the country, a number of, of what they call petroleros or petroleum workers were ousted by the military regime as a, as a mechanism. It was a site of, of concern for, for the regime, um, a national security concern, because you were talking about the, um, you know, the petroleum industry. And so there were just waves of purges in, in, in Petrobras, but there was a concerted effort this is in the early in the early days of the military regime. So this is 1964 and 1965. There was a concerted effort at the time to make sure that 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 these um, that these individuals were all fired under ordinary legislation and not under the exceptional acts of the regime, because there was an anticipation um, that in Brazil an amnesty will come. And we don't want that to open the doors to have them return. So that is what happens because when the amnesty comes in 1979, 15 years after many of these um, these individuals had been um, forced out, uh, purged from from Petrobras, they they on the face of it are not um, considered in the amnesty because they technically did not lose their job under any sort of exceptional um, laws of the regime, but rather through because. Um, usually because they had not shown up to work because they were um, in hiding or not allowed to enter into the facilities, uh, into the facilities of the, of the company. Um, so Mario Lima becomes somebody that, um, among other leaders, that um, takes on the, the case of the cause of, of the petroleum workers. Um, he, after the amnesty, he files for a commission he and, and, and all the petroleros are rejected because of on the, as I said, on the face of it, they don't, they, they don't fit the, the strictures of, of the amnesty, but he takes his case to court um, and he, he wins. I mean, initially they, they say they will tire him, but he fought for reinstatement. He said he was only 46 years old. He was perfectly capable, capable to keep working. This takes Kate, place in the context of sort of incremental democratization. There was the amnesty in 79, and then there's movements towards um, direct elections of, of different executive level, state and otherwise, um, leading up to the um, first election in, 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 um, um, for a civilian. Um, so he takes his case to court, but then he also works on sort of a, 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 a brokered solution for the um, the petroleum workers, because he is now back in in Congress, and so he works for a specialized um, solution for them to be reinstated. And in fact, um, there are additional legal maneuvers, but they are um, there is a ceremony, and they are reinstated. And many go back to work, at least symbolically, to go back onto their jobs in in um, 1985. Um, others. Um, stay on and they stay on and work um, several more years. And a number of these individuals that are among the first to apply in the early 2000s when the National Commission is set up. Um, Who was Euclides Figueiredo? Can you explain his role in the constitutionalist revolution? Yeah, I like that we're kind of doing reverse chronologic here. I think it's interesting to go um, to kind of do this order in part because I think that's um, some of the, probably the, the broadest interest in the book will really be about understanding the role of amnesty really from the 19, you know, 1979 forward um, for, for, 
for listeners who are interested in, in transitional justice and for readers of the book, I think that will be um, probably the highest interest. And then part of it is, is to say, yes, so this is the information about that, but then what's this longer history of amnesty in Brazil? What are its roots? Not just, not just in this moment of, of this broader debates about transitional justice and, and, and efforts for that that are often done in a comparative way, looking at, you know, as we talked about earlier on, um, Argentina, Chile, Brazil. So Euclides Ferreiro is, is um, a figure who was um, involved in amnesty in the 1930s and 1940s. And this is, this is a different moment um, where he's, he's in the opposition in the 1930s. In 1930, there's a revolution in Brazil that brings the figure of, of Julio Vargas to power. Um, he's a, you know, a seminal figure that rules um, until 1945. Um, he, between 19, in the late 1930s through 1945, there's um, a dictatorship in Brazil and he's a, he's a dictator. He then comes back to power a little bit later, but he's a real seminal figure in the 20th century in, in Brazil. And Euclides Figueiredo is an oppositional figure, and he is among the leaders of a of a, is what essentially is they call it a constitutionalist revolution, but it's essentially a civil war against um, against Vargas. Um, but he becomes this figure in amnesty because he campaigns very hard. He argues very um, vehemently for amnesty to be something that involves and necessitates some sort of restitution on part of the state, that, it, that if somebody is amnesty, it means you also restore them to where they had been, what you had, what you had damaged. So if, if somebody has been purged from the military, they go back to the military essentially. So he, he makes this argument um, following an amnesty granted to some of these um, individuals involved in this revolt in 1932. He does it again in 1945 and the 1945 amnesty is, is uh, um, part of the undoing of the dictatorship of Julia Vargas. Um, it, is, it is part of, of a democratization movement in Brazil that is, you know, at the end of World War II, Brazil sent um, its military to fight in World War II. They are coming home, you know, defeated fascism abroad. There shouldn't be fascism at home. There's a sort of a liberalization of the press, the legalization of the Communist Party. Um, there's this, this sort of moment of opening and this amnesty is part of it. He, um, he actually was involved in, a, in, a, in another um, movement, let military know-how to this movement called inter integralism that was anti-Vargas in 1938. He ends up um, actually being sentenced to prison and removed from the military um, following that in 1938. 1945, you know, he would be amnestied. He then serves on a, on, um, a constitutional constituent assembly and argues quite strongly that there be some mechanism that's automatic, that, re, that an amnesty obliges them the, the, the return of the person to their former status. He makes very passionate arguments in that regard. This is important because his son is João Figueiredo, who is the um, military president in 1979 with the important amnesty that is part of the end of the, of the military regime. And in, in those debates, 
people hearken back, you know, call the attention of, of Jean Figueiredo to things that his father had said in support of some, the obligation for that, that amnesty requires some sort of um, additional step on behalf of the state. And I will just mention that he, um, he sort of tests the boundary of the amnesty. He is reinstated and becomes a, a brigadier general after the amnesty of 1945. And then he tests the sort of the reach of that in the early 1950s, he, he applies for benefits that were granted to um, military members who served in World War II, Brazilian military members. Um, and he says that, you know, had he not been ousted, he would have been able and willing to serve. And so, you know, he should be considered a beneficiary. That is denied, but it's part of a larger debate that's going on at this time about what does amnesty do? Does it, does it, can it, can it restore what might have been but wasn't? Or does it just go back to where you were? And this is something that is a debate that goes throughout, um, throughout the 20th century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. You comment as follows, that not only did the grander national security concerns of the moment weigh on the outcomes of commission hearings, but so too did the muddled reality of old political and personal squabbles. The expectation that amnesty might act as a purveyor for national reconciliation on a large scale got lost in translation at the departmental level. Can you share some specific examples of, of this? Yeah, so this is, this is following that 1945 amnesty. And one thing that is, this is that this moment of opening, but it's a brief opening because, because what soon follows is renewed repression and the Cold War by the, by the late 1940s. Um, so the, the, that commission or that amnesty of 1945 is the first one that sets up a commission to adjudicate claims for the benefits of amnesty within the law itself. So the law is passed and so the, the, you know, these crimes are amnestied and individuals who you know, lost their jobs can petition to you know, a commission to be reinstated. Um, so it tests this, it tests this mechanism to how do you take amnesty and what does what happens on an individual level um, what I found in my research is that it gets very muddled and it's and and um, they take a long time so I'll, I'll just give you a couple examples there's a, a correction guard um, so he's he's you know a, a state functionary he's arrested in prison in 1936. On an amendment to the to a constitution that has to do with the response to um, a revolt that had happened, so he's he's disciplined. He loses his job and he and he um, ends up in prison, related to um, to sort of political policing. In um, a little bit over a decade later, he um, he petitions and his his petition is given unanimous consent, ruling for readmission in 1947. Uh, but then it's blocked by the president because it's he, you know, be, because they're looking at who are the people that, you know, um, 
were subject to this particular amendment to the constitution um, because there was re there's renewed repression. So he is he is among those that 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 are blocked, but he keeps he keeps pushing forward. There's another amnesty in 1961 that sort of opens another window, but now we're at 1961. And remember, he was ousted in 1936. Um, he ultimately is reinstated in 1963, um, but then that that is rolled back in 1969, and all of that is revoked. In 1969, it will be under the the um, under the dictatorship. So it, what highlighted to me was that there are these these settlements that just aren't settled, and that um, and that everything is subject to sort of the pressure of the time. And sometimes there were there were cases that the commission. See, there were allegations that this is just a personal vendetta and the, and the commissions kind of couldn't see their way through it. So they tabled it or said, well, um, there are other disciplinary infractions. And so they just didn't move. I'm curious to ask you about the Review Commission of 1935 to 1937 and its impact on Brazilian politics and history. Uh, you describe in particular the role of two particular commissioners, Amaro Magaes da Silva and Eugenio de Lucena. What role did their activities play in the history of the Review Commission? And what's the significance of the reports of this commission? Yes, yeah, so this is the, the um, first example of a bureaucracy that then takes hold as I just described in 1945, and then later in, uh, following the, the, the amnesty of the, of the Cold War era dictatorship. This one is not directly um, part of the, of the amnesty law, but is set up in response to an anticipation of claims because of the amnesty law. So it's a, it's a bureaucracy that's set up to rule on purges from the civil servants, civil, civil servants um, when Vargas came to power. So he comes to power and he sort of cleans house um, and a number of people lose their jobs. So this is, a, this is, this is the way in which those, those claims will be adjudicated. Um, there's a number of, of, of controversies that come out of it, given its scope, um, given what it can do and what it can't do. And these are two of the of the commissioners on it who are who are preparing the reports and, and granting ostensibly granting readmission. But what happens is is two things that that there it's a bureaucratic solution, but there are also bureaucratic problems because there people are granted ostensibly readmission, but they it, it requires many additional steps and indeed a vacancy. Um, and so it becomes something that's that's a source of frustration. There are you know, advertisements in the newspaper about calls to comes to meetings because, um, you know, if you've had this ruling from the commission but haven't been reinstated, we're meeting to do this and that. Um, and it's very, you know, it becomes something that 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 appears to be more symbolic than than, than functional. What also happens is that there is a, um, a barrack revolts that break out just as this commission is beginning its work. So this commission is starting its work to figure out how to sort of rectify excessive political repression. And then this threatening revolts breaks out in the middle of it, which sort of muddies it all, or they do this work in the middle of increased um, uh, repression. One, one additional passage that struck me was 
the following comment of yours on pages 89 and 90. You write, arguably the implementation of amnesty through bureaucratic entities ensured a level of efficiency and fairness in its application. With the bureaucratic solution, however, came bureaucratic problems. A favorable ruling from the commission, for example, did not translate into guaranteed reintegration into one's former post, which often required a series of additional administrative steps and determinations. Additionally, the seemingly impersonal application of the law through a commission was subject to decidedly personal interventions, especially as the optimism and openness of the immediate end of the Second World War gave way to the Cold War and renewed political repression. How did the repression that characterized Cold War Brazil originate in the 1920s? Yeah, the, um, this is this is a sort of an introduction to what I had what I had just described um, with what happens. But there's um, it's this period of the 1920s. There's, it, it's, it's a period of growing resistance to the politics as it was um, in Brazil. And you have a movement for reform, including um, by a man named Luis Carlos Prestes, who is then that man in the 1930s, who is among um, those that are, that, well, he resists, he res he's part of the movement in the 1920s. He is not part of the movement to bring Vargas to power. And in fact, he, um, he spends um, a number of years in Moscow and he becomes then the, the, the leader and the longtime leader, he would be, be the longtime leader of the Communist Party of Brazil in the, in, um, in the 20th century. So he is one of the leaders that leads this, this barracks revolt in 1935 that, that is terrifying to to Vargas and his um, and his regime as the specter of of um, potentially a communist inspired or led revolt within the Brazilian military itself. So this is the crackdown that happens just as that review commission we were just talking about is doing its work. There's this this dragnet set out to to um, which is really most would say an exaggerated response to the actual threat um, of the sort of ill-conceived and coordinated revolts that, that broke out in late 1935. Um, and then Varg, uh, uh, Prestes becomes, he's, he is captured, he is, he is in prison and it becomes um, on, on one side sort of the rally cry for amnesty and also the sticking point to it. Um, in, in the 19 in the 1940s but then with that amnesty there's a, as I mentioned a sort of a political opening um, and there's a brief moment of, of legality for the party he is in fact amnestied in 1945 as well can you share the story of the revolt of the lash what happened during this tragic episode the revolt of, of the of the lash occurred in 1910 and it 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 ended with amnesty. Um, it was the, the the individuals involved with the revolt demanded amnesty. Um, it has been the subject of a great deal of interest in Brazilian history for a number of reasons, but especially for what it says about um, race in Brazil. 
but the the revolt was uh, was essentially a mutiny on on highly new and highly prized ships um, by Brazilian sailors, most of whom were were black, and it occurred in the bay in in Rio de Janeiro. Um, this is this is you know just a little over a generation after the abolition of slavery in Brazil. Um, the, um, the Navy in particular was, was um, sort of a mirrored in some ways the, the system uh, of slavery and the continuation of it. Um, many many um, Black Brazilians were impressed into naval service and the, there was tremendous um, use of violence as an organizing tool within the, within the Navy. And so this was a revolt um, by these sailors, almost half or roughly half of the of the enlisted um, enlisted men in, in the Navy revolted. And their manifesto, they strikingly describes themselves as sailors, citizens, and republicans of Brazil. And they so they could no longer endure the slavery of the Navy. They demanded an end to flogging. This is why it's now called the Revolt of the Lash removal of officers, better food, and interestingly, an amnesty for having revolted. They make this demand. Um, it is taken as a sort of serious and unacceptable threat to have, to have um, the lowly sailors, especially black sailors, revolting and having cannons aimed, aimed at Rio de Janeiro. So Congress responds with an, with an emissary and also begins to work on an amnesty it's, an amnesty is granted, but it's, it's tremendously controversial. Um, even shamed Brazil sort of internationally with like, how could you do this? It's a blight on the honor of the nation, the honor of the military, and, and sort of a lot of anxiety about what it might portend that, that um, Congress gave in to the demands of, of these sailors. But on the other side, there was support for them and, and for sort of the how poignant their their demands were. They weren't. This wasn't a, a a revolution in the sense of removing a head of state, but but saying, um, you know, just stop torturing us with, with flogging. And the congressional emissary announced in Congress that this is an honest revolt. These, this is this is justified. Um, the amnesty essentially didn't hold. It was granted, and they and they disarmed. Um, but fear reigned. There were roundups, uh, arrests. There was a smaller uprising and then just tremendously harsh repression. And there's not another amnesty really for, for a generation in Brazil. Um, it just is something that that is troublesome, I think, for many for many of the elites that that this this uh, that this in, that this would be granted that that there could be this sort of power reversal, I guess, so to speak. You share the story of the the story known as the Rod of Justice by Joaquim Maria Machado de Assis. What does the story teach us about the phenomenology of punishment and the psychology of violence? Additionally, can you explain the plot of this story to our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Yes. Um, Machado de Assis is a master of, of laying bare 
sort of Brazilian society and and beyond Brazilian society, I think human human nature. The, the plot of the story is a, a young seminarian who does not want to be in the seminary, seeks the intercession of his godfather's girlfriend to get him out. Um, he can't approach his own father. His godfather is terrified to approach his father, but she's willing to sort of use the influence she has to, to do what she can to use her power um, to get him out. And it becomes clear to him that she's going to act on her behalf, on his behalf, and that he, she's telling him, don't worry about this. This, this is going to work out. I'll take care of it. But in the course of their conversation, he makes a, a, a young uh, enslaved girl who's working for his, his um, godfather's girlfriend laugh. And she's then threatened by this woman and he feels, the seminarian feels sorry for her and sort of tells himself he's not gonna let anything happen to her. Um, but he ultimately does and in fact uh, participates in, in you know, the disciplining, the, 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 um, the beating of, of, this, of, this, of this young girl. And, and what it brings to the fore is, is really about, I think, it, convictions and the abandonment of convictions, the um, various ways of the expressions of power, of threat, violence, the prevalence of violence, the fear of violence, the reliance on violence, but I think especially sort of the complicity in violence and sort of what we let happen. Um, which I think you might want to talk about another another work where that happens at, at, as well. Sort of questions this idea of of comp complicity that I talk about in a in a chapter that happens, you know, almost um, at least a half a century later. Mm -hmm. uh, another piece of literature that I would be interested to ask you to comment on is Bernardo Kuczynski and his novel. K, which relates the fate of his disappeared sister, Ana Rosa. Uh, what does the story of Ana Rosa teach us about Brazil's truth commission? What does the plot line of the novel K by Bernardo Kuczynski contribute to our understanding of torture in Brazil. So um, Kuczynski is a, is a journalist, interestingly, and he, he turns to fiction to tell this story. And, and, this, and his sister um, is, was disappeared by the regime, um, tortured by the regime, killed by the regime. The way the story K is um, told is it's, it's about a father's desperate search for his disappeared daughter. And he says he, Kuczynski says he tells the story through a series of fragments from his memory. So the stories are, are sort of vignettes, separate vignettes, and that they come from fragments of his memory. But he also acknowledges that memories are tricky. Um, and, and the one chapter that I highlight is about a, a council meeting that this, his sister had been a, a professor in the chemistry department at a prestigious university in Sao Paulo. And there he had been given access to council notes 
um, meetings of this council um, when they rescinded her contract after she had not appeared to teach for uh, um, quite some time. Um, and it, it's interesting for a number of reasons, among them that he, this is what he had access to, is sort of cursory notes from a bureaucratic hearing. Um, later, when there is a truth commission, there is testimony and reporting and, and statements about what actually happened to her, um, how she was victimized, how she was uh, tortured, killed, uh, and disappeared. But at the time he's writing, that doesn't exist. And what he has are these notes. And then what he does with them is imagine what the people at that meeting were thinking based on what's in the notes. And, and so this is, you know, why it's fiction, because it is, it is his, he imagines the thoughts of these people. And the message that is that, you know, they may have had these thoughts or thoughts similar to them, but silence prevails because what happens is that, is that her contract is, um, is terminated um, and she loses her job. And the larger, it, it sort of examines the, the insidiousness of, of repression, but also this idea of responsibility or complicity, because he goes around and there are, there are folks in the room who he seems to suggest should say something, should do something, should, based on their own experiences, should, should understand and take us and take a stand, but they but they don't. They let you know they let this happen. And so it gets at this notion of responsibility or complicity. But elsewhere in the book, he also talks about you know what what the the survivors blame themselves for, the the relatives blame themselves for. We you know where did he fail? What responsibility does he he bear that he he didn't he didn't you know insist on something or change the course or um, and that is that is more of what the responsibility than being pushed on them to figure out what happened to his sister. Um, and this, in the absence of information, then he, he assumes a lot of responsibility for what had, had happened. What transpired in the 1893 Naval Revolt? And how does the 1893 Naval Revolt appear in the novel the Sad End of Polycarpo Charisma by Afonso Henriquez de Lima Bajato. Yeah, this is a, this was a, 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 a very striking, bitter satire of the beginning of the Brazilian Republic. So the, the revolution that upset the, the ousted the monarchy in Brazil um, essentially ended up setting up two successive military regimes. And the military was felt comfortable in the position because the because the 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 architects of of the new republic were influenced by positivist thought and the notion uh, that of order and progress, but that for progress you need order and that the military could be the purveyor of that order. But what happens is that in, in, by 1893, there's this, the second of, of the two successive um, dictators and he is, he's called the Iron Marshal. He's, he's, he is, um, you know, in every sense of the world, a, a dictator and there is, there is a revolt against him. Um, by some in in the navy, and Lima Bajeto has this satire of this this event, um, and his protagonist of this novel is a devout 
Brazilian patriot. And he's troubled by Brazilian society's deference and fondness for Europe. And he really seeks to reform and restore Brazil. So he has different, um, different ideas and there's sort of intertextual um, connections to a, like a Don Quixote kind of character where he does all of this, this reading. Um, and, and so this is, this is, you know, he's going to be enlightened by all of this knowledge and he seeks to re, um, have the official language of Brazil change from Portuguese to Tupi, the indigenous language. Uh, he wants to return to um, indigenous farming practices and, um, and that also meets ridicule at every step. And then um, he is, is interested, he turns sort of to the military um, and he brings to the attention of, of the dictator a disturbing scene that he sees that, that just can't be. Um, and so he reports it instead of being, instead of being you know, congratulated or embraced for his devotion to Brazilian state, he faces the firing squad that he had just, um, that he had just uh, expressed outrage about, and then um, that's the very sad end. Um, the satire is really about what is what's wrong with the Brazilian uh, Republic. That there's something that's that's off about Brazil, about its institutions, that it's set up in a way that um, that the, the, you know, the protagonist can't see it or won't see it. But it's a bit of a uh, of a warning of of uh, about the nature of the Brazilian Republic. And it, it's, it's interesting to me because it's, it's similar to an, an argument that's made, a foundational argument made early on in the 1890s about the role of amnesty in Brazil. And that same, the same sort of notions of there's something wrong with Brazil are part of that, are part of that argument. Who was Rui Barbosa? Why did he write Anistia Inversa, in English, Inverted Amnesty? Yes. This... And, and in what ways does this piece of writing foreshadow the problems in social history in Brazil that you allude to in your book? Yes. So this, was, this is what I, I had just um, sort of suggested a, a minute ago, that his writing is um, is... These are these are part of a legal argument and a legal case involving about about four almost four dozen former military members, some of whom took part in this revolt that we just talked about in 1893 against Floriano. There's an amnesty in 1895, and the amnesty provides for them to be reinstated into the military, but only after a two-year interim. So they go to court to challenge this two-year two-year um, sort of suspension, mandatory two-year suspension. And uh, Rui Barbosa, who was one of the civilian founders of the, of the Republic of Brazil, he's the primary author of the Constitution of the Republic of Brazil, the first constitution in 1891. Um, so he argues this case all the way up to the Supreme Court. And his arguments are, are really based on that there's a balance of power issue, that it's unconstitutional, that the Congress cannot um, institute and then ex execute a penalty. So he's, you know, makes the argument that this mandatory suspension amounts to a penalty, and that's not um, within the purview of, of Congress to do. Uh, but he he frames it 
as a case of juridical teratology, which in, denotes sort of an essential or congenital deformity. And so this is an argument before the court that if you let the amnesty stand as this, there's something quite, you know, quite, quite wrong. He also makes allusions um, to, to slavery in Brazil, which, you know, had just been recently abolished. Um, but he loses at, at, at the level of the, of the Supreme Court. Um, it, it's later, soon after resolved in, in Congress, essentially the, the passage, the, they pass a lodge that repeals that portion of it. But his writings about, about amnesty become in some ways um, gospel going forward that, that many of, of statements he made in the course of these legal arguments are repeated verbatim in Congress in the 1940s and the 1970s. Um, and he's, it's this, this notion that if, if amnesty is not linked to restitution and obligation for some sort of restorative justice, then it isn't really amnesty. That's not full amnesty. Toward the end of your book, you allude to the official apology granted by the Amnesty Commission, the Paidido de Disculpas. What ethical and moral lessons does this apology and its shortcomings teach us? Yeah, this was so. Now we're back in the in in the in the twenty first century. Um, this was part of what I argue is the expansion of of amnesty or the expectation of of what amnesty can and should do as a mechanism of of restorative um, justice and transitional justice in Brazil. Um, this was instituted under. It, roughly around 2008 in the work of the commission. It was a way um, the commission gave an official acknowledgement of, of somebody having been subject to political persecution and of their status now as a recipient of amnesty. They also asked for forgiveness, which was described as a hermeneutical turn for the commission and also sort of a reversal of the gaze um, on, the, on the individual um, Brazilian citizen, a, a recognition of the failure of the state and their duty to protect um, and to do this through amnesty. And it was done in these commissions that previously had just sort of looked at the contours of, of the specifics of somebody's um, claim vis-a-vis -vis the, the calculus for indemnity in the law. This was an expansion on that because it would be given to, to individuals even if under the law there was no uh, um, adjustment or um, any sort of indemnity that might be owed them. So it was this, this mechanism of, of adding officially some, for, some form of acknowledgement. As we bring this dialogue to a close, I firstly just wanted to convey how much of a humble honor it was to speak with you today. And I just wanted to ask you, what are you working on now or next as your subsequent project? Um, yeah, I, I, um, I took a bit of a break after fini finishing this manu manuscript, but I am starting, um, I don't have a lot to say. I can give a bit of a preview. I'm just starting to think through uh, a project dealing with questions, dealing with uh, international human rights norms and trends, and especially a couple of events, some specific events and how they were managed, understood, responded to, um, framed by 
the dictatorship of the 1960s and the 1970s. So that's sort of what I'm thinking through at the moment. Wonderful. I wish you the best of luck with it. Thank you thank so you. much. Uh, it was my privilege to talk with you today. Um, thank you for your erudition and thank you for how much you gave to me and gave to all of us in your thorough and thoughtful answers to the questions that were part of our conversation today. I thank you, Ari. It's wonderful to be with you. Thank you. Uh, to our listeners, this is Ari Barbalat, your host on the New Books Network podcast. It has been my privilege and my honor to be talking today with Dr. Anne Schneider, a historian of Brazil and of human rights. We have been discussing her new book, Amnesty in Brazil, Recompense After Repression, 1895 to 2010, published in Pittsburgh by University of Pittsburgh Press, 2021. Thank you very much.